Mobituaries presented by Crystal Cruises, the world's most awarded luxury cruise line, offering all-inclusive voyages by ocean, river, yacht, and expedition. Discover a world where luxury is personal. Visit crystalcruises.com today. I'm on 34th Street in Manhattan outside Macy's at Herald Square. I worked here more than 25 years ago. And on one fateful day as a 23-year-old, I came face to face with bona fide old-time Hollywood stardom. Sort of face to face. Let's go inside. Macy's was my first job when I arrived in New York. I worked behind the counter as a fragrance specialist for Chanel. I was not a spritzer. Spritzers were the male models in front of the counter, the bait to lure customers so that I could dazzle them with my knowledge of the product line. Uh, Can I help you, ma'am? Hmm. Ah, yeah, Chanel number 19. You do know who wears number 22, the Queen Mother. I hear she smells great. You're a French teacher? Well, you have no choice. You have to wear Chanel number five. Coco? for the divorcee looking to get her groove back. Yes, it's an eau de toilette. No, it's not literally toilet water. Most people run screaming when they see anybody standing there with a fragrance bottle. And they didn't when they saw you. That's my former supervisor, Javen Bunch. Oh my God, I cannot believe this. And that man shouting in disbelief is salesman par excellence and my former colleague, Raymond Ramirez. And I've been with Chanel since 1988. You were like the Cal Ripken of Chanel at Macy's. That's a baseball reference. Oh, my goodness. So one of the things I remember is that occasionally celebrities, stars would walk through. I got to see Cher. The opera diva, Jessie Norman. Before you was Elizabeth Taylor. I got to see Lena Horne. But for me, the one truly magical moment took place in April of 1992 during the annual flower show. I was right behind the counter. Yes. Right? Yes. When when she, and by she I mean Audrey Hepburn, yes. walked, floated yes. by my counter. Yes. Audrey Hepburn. I will cherish my visit here in memory as long as I live. When I say she floated by, I'm not just talking about her impossibly perfect posture, which indeed made it seem like she was being pulled by a string. It was more than that. I've met a lot of stars, and most of them kind of disappoint. She didn't. More than gracefulness, she exuded grace. I do remember that day. What do you remember? Oh my God, I remember the excitement. I remember the shock. Excitement, sure. But the floor became very quiet when she floated through, like the world came to a stop. There was this reverence among everybody on the floor. No one would have tried to get that. Right. And that's a difference, too. Yes, even today. if selfies existed, smartphones, you never would have thought to, like, wrap your arm around her and put your, shove your hand in front of her face. You wouldn't go near Miss Hepburn, and that's who she would have been. More than a quarter century after her passing, yes, it's been that long, the image of Hepburn in a black dress and sunglasses having breakfast outside Tiffany's is as identifiable as Marilyn Monroe standing above a subway grate or James Dean in his red jacket. 
But our attachment to Audrey feels special, more intimate. Let's find out why. Along the way, I'll take you to some unusual places, and we'll cross paths with some unexpected people, like, say, a former president of the United States. Were you aware that the day of your inauguration, Audrey Hepburn died? No. You didn't know that? No. I'm Mo Rocca, and this is Mobituaries. This Mobit, the timeless Audrey Hepburn. January 20th, 1993, death of an icon. When I started on this podcast, I kind of made a promise to myself that I wouldn't get too gushy or hagiographic about any of the people I was profiling. But I may have to make an exception because we're talking about Audrey Hepburn. This episode is going to be a little unconventional, more a series of vignettes than a womb-to-tomb biography. Now, like I said at the beginning, the connection to Audrey is personal for people. One day, not too long ago, I was feeling especially reflective, and so I tweeted. Because what's the point of reflecting if you don't let your followers know it? I went ahead and tweeted, How did we drift so far from Audrey Hepburn? Can we ever get back? I got quite the response. One person answered, No way, there is no comparison. Another wrote, She was not of this world. She's now been gone 25 years. She's become a legend. Sean Hepburn Ferrer is Audrey Hepburn's older son from her first marriage to actor Mel Ferrer. Audrey Hepburn is not the movie star from Hollywood. Audrey Hepburn is the young girl from across the landing who puts on a little black dress and goes out into the world. And she represents us, not them. And we're rooting for her. And we do root for her. Somehow she manages to be both aspirational and totally accessible. Whether she's the chauffeur's daughter who dazzles the industry tycoon and his brother in Sabrina. Oh, Sabrina, Sabrina, where have you been all my life? Right over the garage. Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. The difference between a lady and a flower girl is not how she behaves, but how she is treated. Or my personal favorite, the bohemian bookworm turned fashion model in Funny Face. Oh, how could I be a model? I have no illusions about my looks. I think my face is funny. No, she wasn't a bombshell like Marilyn Monroe or Elizabeth Taylor. But what may have seemed funny to her was considered an ideal to many. Oh, God, I didn't think I was ever going to look like anyone in a movie. But of course, when I saw Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn... I definitely wished I looked like her. In 2011, I interviewed the late great wit Nora Ephron. She wrote When Harry Met Sally and directed Sleepless in Seattle. And had I known we were going to talk about this, I would be wearing right now my black turtleneck sweater, which almost looks like the one she wore in Funny Face. Nora went on to tell me this terrific story. When she was 16, she visited Edith Head, the great costume designer of Hollywood's golden age. And Edith Head then took me to see her famous 
dressing room, which had 36 panels of mirror for every 10 degrees. It was a completely circular room. And she said that there was only one person who could stand in that room and look good in all 36 mirrors, and it was Audrey Hepburn. That is great. <laughs> if I were a geometry teacher, I would use that. Yes. There was no one like her ever. The charm was who she was. I've never seen anything like it. It's striking that Nora Ephron, who had perfectly articulated opinions about pretty much everything, had trouble describing what it was about Audrey Hepburn that was so captivating. Ditto the normally unflappable Johnny Carson. Audrey appeared on The Tonight Show in 1976, and it's kind of wild watching Carson and his sidekick Ed McMahon reduced to anxious schoolboys as they get ready to welcome her onto the show. This is the first time she's been on the show. And would you believe I'm a little nervous? Really? <laughs> what? I, not to put you down at all. I mean, I would believe that because I would feel the same way. She's kind of very, very special. She's a special lady. She's delicate. <laughs> not you. Yes, that's the word I was going to use. Delicate. Delicate. Would you welcome, please, Miss Audrey Hepburn? And as I always like to say, I never really saw anyone truly misbehave in front of her. How do you think she felt about being called delicate? <laughs> she must have smirked because she knew that she was not because of what she lived through. And Audrey Hepburn lived through a lot. Maybe the reason she pulled off all those Cinderella roles so beautifully was that her own early life was something of a fairy tale. And I don't mean the Disney kind. I'm talking grim. I never led what people think is this glamorous life. I've always been me. I've always been aware of, of what goes on in the world. And I certainly grew up in a war-ravaged country. And, and I've always known, you know, that I was privileged and many were not. I've always seen suffering, known about it. And that hasn't changed. So I'm still the same old, old <laughs> girl. <laughs> Audrey Hepburn was born in Brussels, Belgium, on May 4, 1929. Her father was a banker and her mother a Dutch aristocrat. She spent some of her youth in the UK, where she trained as a dancer, and where her parents were supporters of the fascist movement. After her father abandoned the family and as war loomed, Audrey moved with her mother to neutral Holland. Soon after, the Nazis invaded. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Hitler added another to his bag of small nations today, the fifth in 14 months, when the Dutch army laid down its arms everywhere except in the extreme southwestern part of the country. In spite of her parents' pre-war politics, Audrey, as a young teenager, did what she could to help the resistance, like raising funds through secret dance performances. The war was a lasting trauma for her as her hometown of Arnhem became a battlefield, as reported here by Walter Cronkite. The tragedy of resupply now besets Arnhem. Brigades protecting landing zones are under withering German attack. Hepburn talked about her wartime experience during her American television debut in 1951 on a show called We the People. She was 22 years old. 
Ladies and gentlemen, telling you her own story, Broadway's latest star, Audrey Hepburn. It's her first time on Broadway. She's starring in a play called Gigi, the precursor to the musical. And she's understandably excited. This is a wonderful Christmas for me. Miraculously, I'm in New York on Broadway. But then the tone shifts as Hepburn begins to reenact what happened to her during the war. The Christmas I want to tell you about is the one that took place here, Arnhem, Holland, seven years ago. It's pretty surreal. Hepburn is basically playing herself as a 15-year-old. She talks about how her uncle was executed by the Nazis and how her family nearly starved. And it was the morning of December the 24th when finally my aunt told us there wasn't a scrap of food left in the house. Well, I'd heard one could sleep and forget hunger. Perhaps I could sleep all through Christmas. I'd try. But there's a Christmas miracle when the resistance sends a delivery. Ten potatoes. The most wonderful, the most beautiful thing I ever saw. It may sound a bit melodramatic to you, but ten potatoes would have been a prize. Hepburn suffered severe malnourishment during what was known as the Dutch Famine. Under German occupation, much of the populace had reached the starvation level. The Nazis blocked the food supply to over four million civilians. More than 20,000 died. The lack of food comes day after day after day, and it's a, it, it's a long torture. Luca Dotti is Hepburn's younger son from her second marriage to Italian psychiatrist Andrea Dotti. He says that during the war, Audrey and her family were so desperate for food, they had to make flour out of tulip bulbs. By the time Holland was liberated, she weighed only 88 pounds. Did that stress stay with her for the rest of her life? Obviously, yes, but she hid it very well. All her life was a search of stability. That's why home was very important. Luca wrote a book a few years back about their home life and her favorite recipes, a surprise bestseller. Times and times over, people were surprised that my mother cooked. Actually, they were surprised by the fact that she actually ate. I think Luca's half-joking here, a nod to the speculation that his mother, who was very thin, may have had an eating disorder. But Luca swears by her love of pasta and chocolate, which she associated with the Allied liberation of Holland. My mother was then a survivor, and when you are, you always have this duality. You know, you're happy, you're, you're alive, and, but then you have this sense of guilt because the, the person next door didn't make it. And for Hepburn, one of those people, while not a literal next-door neighbor, was another Dutch girl. Hi, it's Mo. If you're enjoying Mobituaries, the podcast, may I invite you to check out Mobituaries, the book. It's chock full of stories not in the podcast. Celebrities who put their butts on the line, sports teams that threw in the towel for good, Forgotten fashions, defunct diagnoses, presidential candidacies that cratered, whole countries that went kaput, and dragons. Yes, dragons. You see, people used to believe that dragons were real until... Just get the book. You can order Mobituaries, the book, from any online bookseller or stop by your local bookstore. And look for me when I come to your city. Tour information and lots more at mobituaries.com. Audrey Hepburn felt a special connection to someone you wouldn't necessarily expect. Are you speaking of Anne Frank? 
I'm speaking of Anne Frank. You have yes. an affinity for that story, don't you? I do, in a way, because we both lived through the same war, exactly the same age. I was born the same year Anne Frank was born. That's Audrey Hepburn speaking to CBS in 1989. But she became acquainted with the story of Anne Frank far earlier, earlier than almost anyone. I read the diary in Dutch, in Galley form, when it was still being edited. And it was one of the most devastating experiences I've ever had, because more than just reading a book, it was like having the whole war played back to me. She obviously was locked up inside. I was outside. And here was somebody who had been able to put on paper everything I'd felt during those years. And it was, it destroyed me, I must say. And it has stayed an extremely emotional experience for me. Luca calls his mother and Anne Frank soul sisters. And I had no idea that Otto Frank, Anne's father, actually wanted Hepburn to play his daughter on screen. He even visited her home in Switzerland to try to persuade her. There's this striking photo of Hepburn, Otto Frank and his second wife, posing outside Hepburn's home. But she said no to the role. Why did she turn it down? Because it was much too close to what she lived through. She thought it would kill her. She actually believed that it would somehow, you know, kill her to do it. Because she felt so close to her and she was crushed that she made it and and Frank didn't. Both her sons talked to me about the lifelong impact of the war on their mother. My mother once said, you know, if I get through this alive, I will never ever complain anymore. And, And this is something she actually did. My mother was never complaining, even in the worst situations. And I think that she, this is one of the reasons why she wanted to do the UNICEF for is that she remembered so vividly herself and her emotions as a little girl and living through the war. And so that's, she, there's this empathy thing going on. Long before Angelina, there was Audrey, traveling the globe in the 1980s and 90s, raising awareness about the world's poorest, actively lobbying governments to help children in need. While she appeared in a few films here and there, it was her charitable work that defined her later years. As a goodwill ambassador for UNICEF, she really was one of the world's most prominent celebrity humanitarians. She never forgot the relief that came at the end of the war. Is there a point at which our well of compassion might run dry, do you think? Never. I, I, I don't think that's—it's not in human nature. Giving is, and, and giving is like living. I mean, if you stop wanting to give, I think you, there's nothing more to live for. The darkness of her wartime experience may seem like the polar opposite of the light she emits on screen. And yet... I'm wondering if this combination of yearning and gratitude is what still draws us today because those things really seem to show up on screen. And it did show. It did show through her eyes. It did show in her uh, genuinity and simplicity. And, And people realize it's true. So it's very hard to define, but you defined it very well. After talking with Luca and Sean and learning what their mother went through, I went back and rewatched some of her movies. And now I see her story in those performances. 
as the wounded Holly go lightly, looking for a better life. The mean reds are horrible. Suddenly you're afraid and you don't know what you're afraid of. As Princess Anne, who feels genuine joy on her Roman holiday. I like to sit a sidewalk cafe and look in shop windows, walk in the rain. It's no coincidence that in the screen test that launched her, you can watch it yourself, it's on YouTube, she's talking about the war. Tell us about the war. Wasn't pretty awful. Yeah, very bad. And then, we weren't going to leave this out, there's Wait Until Dark. Audrey Hepburn, the role you're going to remember whenever you're alone. Hepburn plays a blind woman who is terrorized inside her home. Co-star Alan Arkin plays her tormentor and supposedly hated doing the tormenting. I mean, who wants to be mean to Audrey Hepburn? The scenes were intense, and Audrey, quite possibly channeling her wartime experience, endures the struggle and survives. Listen, there were plenty of other talented actresses in the 1950s and 60s, and they were beautiful too. Some of them were supposed to be the next Audrey Hepburn. Millie Perkins, Maggie McNamara, Susan Strasberg. But they hadn't lived through what Audrey lived through. Peter Bogdanovich, who directed Hepburn, summed it up perfectly when he called her an iron butterfly. All this may go some way towards explaining Audrey Hepburn's hold on us, but I think there's more to the story. For that, we'll head to, where else? Japan. But first, we've made clear there were no other Audrey Hepburns, but there was one other very famous Hepburn. So let's take a moment to settle something. Audrey Hepburn is not Catherine Hepburn. It reminds me of that disambiguation alert that you get on Wikipedia or Google. You know, did you mean? Now, if you are one of those people who confuses Catherine with Audrey, you probably stopped listening to me 10 minutes ago. Otherwise, it's never too late to disambiguate. Oh, we're going to talk about me, are they related? No, they are not sisters. They are not even third cousins. Who was older? Catherine by 22 years. But who wore the pants? Well, they both did, and quite well, I should add. Then there are the very distinctive Hepburn speech patterns. Guess who's coming to dinner? If you've never heard Catherine's mid-Atlantic affect, you've probably heard Martin Short doing Catherine Hepburn's mid-Atlantic affect. Well, that kind of talk will get you nowhere, mister. Now, Audrey's accent was always a little harder to place. Did I tell you how divinely and utterly happy I am? I guess it was a British-Dutch-American blend. You know, I just like to hear her say things. Why didn't you say something? Serendipity? Right. Suddenly, not only would they not be playing Scrabble, they would also not be playing Parcheesi. Checking spark plugs. What? The journey of Natty Gunn. I'm having much too much fun. We hope you are, too. Stay tuned for more Audrey after this. Just before my stint working at Macy's, I was living in Japan where I studied kabuki. Yes, really. I taught English on the side because it was the early 90s. I had no other income, and a cup of coffee in Tokyo cost about $12. One of my students, a very nice woman named Ritsuko, 
asked me out to a movie. It may have been a date. I still don't know. We ended up going to an Audrey Hepburn film festival where we saw How to Steal a Million, co-starring Peter O'Toole. You interested in a big-time caper? What? A heist. A heist? A life-sized cardboard cutout of Audrey greeted us at the festival entrance. Fans posed for pictures next to it. Now, we've talked about the personal attachment a lot of fans have for her. Well, in Japan, the Audrey love is deep. There's this famous all-female theater troupe there called Takarasaka. They staged a musical version of Roman Holiday. And get this, Hepburn was ranked above Gandhi in a Japanese poll on the most well-liked historical figures. What is the deal with your mother and Japan, the connection? It's intense. It's very intense. Little by little, I understood there was a sincere uh, devotion. There's no other word for it. And Luca would know. He told me that it was through Japanese fan mail and small tokens like origami that he first began to grasp his mother's fame. During his childhood in Rome, he would watch Japanese tourists trying to follow in his mother's film star footsteps. Audrey Hepburn now welcomes you to Rome as the captive princess who goes out on the town to have some fun. And, and they came to Rome to retrace the Roman holiday every scene, you know, and the Vespa and the ice cream right? and the fountain and this and that. In case you haven't seen Roman Holiday, it's the movie that won Hepburn her Oscar. She plays Princess Anne, who's visiting Rome on a royal tour and ends up playing hooky for the day. While pretending to be a commoner, she falls in love with an American journalist, played by Gregory Peck. I could do some of the things I've always wanted to. Like what? Oh, you can't imagine. I'd, I'd like to do just whatever I like the whole day long. When the Japanese saw Roman Holiday, it was love at first sight. It was 1953. The war was still a recent memory, and American culture was really just starting to take root in Japan. The Japanese connection to the film may have something to do with the importance of duty. You see, spoiler alert, Princess Anne tearfully leaves her true love to return to her royal world, not a Hollywood ending. I have to leave you now. I'm going to that corner there and turn. You stay in the car and drive away. It was very understandable for Japanese. Taki Kato lives in Japan and was a young girl when Roman Holiday premiered. But Audrey Hepburn, we could identify with how they say, so charming, so natural. For us, she was so cute. And Japanese tend to like someone who's cute. <laughs> and apparently the Japanese found Hepburn's pixie haircut cuter than Hello Kitty. Hepburn talked about it in a Dutch TV interview in 1988. And actually, it caused a bit of a furor, especially in Japan, where the, where the film was an enormous success. Still is today. Because there, all girls had very long hair, and it was part of the tradition. And they all cut off their hair. And I was, I was uh, held responsible. Yes, that's very true. Taki went on to become a show business coordinator in Tokyo. She worked with a lot of big names. Frank Sinatra, Harry Belafonte, Ringo Starr. And as you may have guessed... Miss Audrey Hepburn. 
In a surprise move, Hepburn left Hollywood when she was still very much in demand in the late 1960s to live abroad and focus on motherhood. But in 1971, Taki helped negotiate to get her back in front of the camera, this time for Japanese commercials. It's that lost-in-translation thing where Americans appeared in ads that were never broadcast in the U.S. Which was very, very sensational in, in Japan, of course. And the commercials was very fashionable. Incidentally, she was advertising high-end wigs. But it wasn't until 1983 that Audrey Hepburn actually went to Japan. The occasion? A fashion show for her dear friend and designer, Hubert de Givenchy. Quick side note, the Givenchy fashion show in Funny Face is a magical sequence. When Hepburn landed in Tokyo, it was like Princess Anne from Roman Holiday had finally arrived. Hepburn was naturally exhausted after a very long flight, and she worried that she might disappoint fans who were accustomed to seeing her as a young woman on screen. So she said to me, Taki, I am very sad. If the Japanese fans look at me in that tired face, they may not like me anymore. Taki told her friend not to worry, that Japanese fans would always love her. And she said, I still remember her big smile, Taki. Okay, you're right. (laughs) Taki and Audrey remained friends for years. I have about 30 letters from her. This this must be in uh, 1983, after she left Japan, I think. I have now almost recovered from my jet lag, but will never get over Japan. Never, she underlines. None of us will ever be the same again, exclamation mark, three of them. She told me, uh, Taki, perhaps in the past years, in, the, in my ancestor era, I might have been a Japanese. Okay, Hepburn may have been joking here, but she understood that there was a bond. So to test this notion of devotion, we sent a producer to this Audrey Hepburn photo exhibition happening in a department store just outside Tokyo. And one of the women waiting in line likened Hepburn to a goddess. Another lady talked about a sense of elegance and her, quote, straight spine that goes like... And you'll remember, that's what I remembered from that day at Macy's. When I caught a glimpse of Audrey Hepburn back in 1992, I had no way of knowing how little time she had left. In September, she was diagnosed with cancer of the appendix. And she died on January 20th, 1993. You would have thought it would have been front-page news. I did. Front page, even above the fold. Yes, I still think in newspaper terms. But someone else was front and center that day. I, William Jefferson Clinton, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Yep, Bill Clinton kind of stole her spotlight. Were you aware that the day of your inauguration, Audrey Hepburn died? No. You didn't know that? No. You did not know that? It didn't, look, I didn't, it was a fairly busy time. I didn't sleep for two days. Understandably, he'd been a little distracted. So to jog his memory, I brought along an old copy of the New York Times. 
She was only 63, yeah, I remember that. I remember how young I thought she was. I didn't think about it being my inaugural day. Yeah, she's like, she's, they, they put her back here. But it's a nice spread. She was amazing, I loved her. I loved Roman Holiday, I loved Funny Face, Sabrina, I loved Breakfast at Tiffany's. I love Sabrina. I like the remake because I like the first one so much. Mm, that may be pushing it. Oh, that is, a, yeah, that's definitely a stretch. That's Karen James. She's a culture critic. And on January 20th, 1993, she was working for the New York Times when she was assigned Audrey Hepburn's obituary. So I want to show you, it's been a long time since you've seen it. I haven't read this obituary in years. I glanced at it. What did I say? I think I said she was elegant and graceful. You do use those words. Audiences were enchanted by her combination of grace, elegance, and high spirits. And she won an Academy Award as Best Actress. You were talking about Roman Holiday there. In a string of films that followed, she continued to play the lithe young thing with stars in her eyes and the ability to make Cinderella transformations. I stand by that. But there's a whole story behind this obituary. So Karen's in the newsroom the day of the inauguration. And at about five in the afternoon, when all the top editors were in the page one meeting putting together the front page, the deputy culture editor came running over to my desk and said, thank goodness you're here. Catherine Hepburn is dead. And we have a 10-year-old obituary. Can you rewrite it? And they were tearing apart page one because they thought Catherine Hepburn was dead. So we walk over to the culture news desk. You're looking very mystified for good reason. I really am. We went to the news desk and said, how do we know she's dead? And someone said, oh, the UN called to tell us. And it was like one of those cartoon moments where you saw the light bulbs go on over everyone's head. And we realized it was Audrey, not Catherine. Before the world knew the word disambiguation, (laughs) you experienced it. That's right. I did firsthand. Did you mean Audrey Hepburn or Catherine Hepburn? That's right. They were so relieved that they did not have to tear apart page one for Audrey Hepburn's obituary. That Catherine Hepburn would have warranted tearing apart a page one, even though that page one was about a presidential inauguration. Exactly. They would have found room for her on page one, and they were doing it. But when I heard it was Audrey, immediately what they said to me was, oh, can you write Audrey's obituary? I feel like this is the kind of mistake that... Audrey Hepburn would have been really gracious about, but (laughs) Catherine Hepburn would not have been pleased about because Catherine Hepburn did not suffer fools. No, she didn't. Well, it's a lovely obit, so it doesn't doesn't seem like a rush job. I mean, really. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I felt bad after that I didn't have time to give her, you know the attention I would have if I'd known. And it's kind of remarkable when when you read your obit that her career was basically 14 years long. I mean, 1953 to 1967. There was a little stuff before, a little stuff afterward. I just have the impression she wasn't one of those people who had to act. There are people who really feel like they have to do it no matter what. And she had other things to do. She had a family. She had her UN work. She really didn't feel as driven to do things that she wasn't really passionately interested in doing. I remember how special it felt to watch the Oscars 
in you know in those days, right? And it was a it was an event that Audrey Hepburn would show up and float across the stage to, to deliver best costume or whatever. Right, partly because she wasn't on screen all the time. Right. So when she appeared, it really did seem like an event. Why do you think people still remember her so fondly? I think there was great affection for her at the time. And I think there's been no one like her since. There are maybe Audrey Hepburn types here and there, but she was so special and so graceful and so elegant in a way that was distinctly hers. You know, Karen's story is so great, and she's not even an obituary writer. In fact, she's only written two obits in her life, Audrey Hepburn and Katherine Hepburn. Maybe it's weird to feel nostalgic for a time you didn't live through. I wasn't around during Audrey Hepburn's heyday. And yet on those days when the news is particularly dreary and people are being especially awful and I'm flipping through the channels and I land on one of her movies, I can't help but wonder, how did we drift so far from Audrey Hepburn? Can we ever get back? One can only hope. Next time on Mobituaries, he did it all. Sammy Davis Jr. He was everything. I mean, he could play any instrument. He could sing. He could dance like a maniac. You were lovers. You were boyfriend, yeah, girlfriend. Yeah. And what was that like? It was fabulous. He's as talented in that area as he was. In, <laughs> as he was otherwise. I certainly hope you enjoyed this Mobit. Be sure to rate and review our podcast. You can also follow Mobituaries on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at Moraka. For more great content about Audrey Hepburn, you can visit Mobituaries.com. You can subscribe to Mobituaries wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Mobituaries was produced by Megan Marcus. Our team of producers also includes Gideon Evans, Kate McAuliffe, Megan Dietrich, and me, Mo Rocca. It was edited by Ashley Cleek and engineered by Dan DeZula. Indispensable support from Genius Dineski, Allison Stanley, David Fox, Richard Rohrer, everyone at CBS News Radio, and special thanks to Macy's, Young and Rubicam, and the Paley Center for Media. Our theme music is written by Daniel Hart. And as always, undying thanks to Rand Morrison and John Carp, without whom obituaries couldn't live. <laughs> ¶¶